Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions. With Amanda Howard and Robert McKnight. Hello and welcome to Monsters Who Murder for another big episode. And we couldn't do it without the one and only serial killer whisperer. Hello, Amanda Howard. Hello, Robert McKnight. It's funny that um, this is our second intro and the first time you just called me the serial killer, Amanda Howard. I wish we got to keep that one. It was so good. (laughs) I know. We had an audio recording issue on my end and it was such a good start to the show because I literally accused you of being a serial killer. Yeah, but I think that we're still bouncing from the Claremont case that we did just a few days ago. So I think that we've still got that going and people wanting to know more about your accents and everything. See, they didn't <laughs> like the first one that you did. They loved the, the one that you did for Claremont. So your dad has to come out. He has to I think out. it's if it's I just do accents out of nowhere, there's no appreciation <laughs> for them. And I am the world's worst person at accents, but I did appreciate the response to last week. It was amazing. <laughs> And today, Amanda, we're covering Tim Jones. Yeah, we are, and and this is going to be a hard slog, so be prepared, everyone. It's not going to be as as fun as as we often have on this on this podcast, even though we are talking about serial killers. But um, yeah, this is a tough one, and it's about the murders of children. So I think we should just sort of say, be aware that we're going to get into some graphic details here, but it is a fascinating case nonetheless. Well, that will be coming up shortly, but first let's get to the news. And the New York Times has a feature interview with Commissioner Geraldine Hart of the Suffolk County Police Department, who has put the infamous Gilgo Beach murders back into the spotlight. The killer, also known as the Long Island serial killer, is believed to have killed 10 to 16 people and has never been found. Ten victims were found in quick succession a decade ago. Amanda, this was a fascinating piece on how Hart decided to make this cold case a priority. Did we learn anything new from the article? Well, I mean, she's been involved in this case for a while now and it's under her that we've actually seen the evidence being um, released to the public about the belt that they found um, with one of the victims that says either WH or HM on it, just depends on which way you hold it up. Um, But because she's FBI, she sort of is bringing that extra bit of effort and, and, and know-how to, to the case. And it's a case that, you know, as you said, this actually did start 10, 10 years ago, but it's one that what we've found is that it sort of was a silent case purely because um, the victims were sex workers and, as we know, they sort of get sort of forgotten, which is absolutely devastating. But there was a, a Netflix documentary earlier this year that actually put a spotlight onto this case. And so with that, it's it's got now public um, interest and with an FBI agent well, ex-FBI agent in charge of the case, I think um, we're, we're going to see some outcomes very, very soon. Yeah, the association with the FBI has been really interesting from the point of view that she has used the FBI connection and the fact that they were involved in this case to get around some tough New York DNA laws um, where you had to give permission for your genealogy DNA to be used in such a way. Um, so it has been interesting, but regarding the... Um, evidence that was shown earlier this year, there were some um, people having a go at that saying, well, this isn't new evidence, it's just new to the public. So what's the point? But this was her way of getting it into the public domain, wasn't it? Well, it is because um, there are a lot of Facebook groups and, and like, there's web sleuths and, and, and places like that that people actually go and pull this evidence apart and they will find it sometimes quicker because it's it's that group mentality that um, a lot of heads together can come up with the solution. So yeah. the fact that some people did, did know about that evidence and now it's it's known to more people, I, I don't see that as harmful because it's not going to be anything that the killer could have said, you know, oh, well, I left a belt behind with that on it. I mean, 
they have to weigh up the the odds on this and is it worth putting it out there or worth keeping that secret? Well, this case is a cold case, so now it's it's the time to carefully select those pieces that will allow them to identify the person because it's such an unusual belt that um, it's going to turn up somewhere. Someone is going to go, aha, I remember that, and that's all they need. Someone has probably rung up and told the police that they know exactly where that belt's from, haven't heard back, and so they assume that it wasn't relevant. These sort of people need to ring again because sometimes these calls get lost, especially when there's a mm, massive flood. Because we've of seen an that time like and time this. again. We have, and this is a perfect opportunity that if someone out there is listening to this and knows about the belt, ring again. Absolutely. All right. A suspected serial killer has been charged over the death of an alleged fourth victim. 19-year-old Jatori Williams has been named by Toronto Police as the killer of 16-year-old Aliyah Azavoir, who was shot to death. Williams is already in custody over three other killings. Amanda, a serial killer at just 19. And in Toronto, and I th- and I don't think of Toronto in in this sort of way. So it's 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 quite devastating to think that someone is at that point at the age of nineteen to consider that serial killers sort of they well the old profiles you used to say between nineteen and twenty seven was sort of their peak period, but we now know that's false. Oh. But um, he is at four victims by the age of nineteen. That there is. Um, there's probably a relief that they've already caught him, but, of course, we have to see if these charges stick. So um, he has been arrested previously, as you said, for three, but now with this fourth one, um, it may be the make or break of this case to see that he's able to pinpoint all of these onto him because it seems to have been done a bit haphazard the way that these um, victims have been sort of clumped together. So the fact that we've now got a 16-year-old victim as well, it's things like that that actually bring these in and out in, in the press and we actually get to see more of a resolution come up. It's interesting you say you don't expect it from Toronto. We've seen lots of cases know, in Toronto. I know, Toronto to me, <laughs> Toronto is like a place I'd like to go to and maybe because I do read about too many serial killers. But I, I, I don't know. Toronto, to me, I don't know. There's just something about it that I like and maybe it's because they have serial killers. <laughs> maybe. All what I do love is Canada, the friendliest place on earth, unless we kill you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. France's most notorious living serial killer may have killed up to 12 more victims after forensics experts pinpointed unidentified DNA on a mattress in his possession. According to the Daily Mail, Mikhail Foronet, known as the Beast of Erdans, was jailed for life without the possibility of parole in May 2008 after admitting to the kidnap, rape and murder of seven young women over a 14-year period from 1987. In 2018, the 78-year-old also confessed to the murder of Joanna Parrish, a Leeds University language student who was killed in Burgundy countryside in eastern France in 1990. He was also charged with the murder of two other women. But now French authorities are to reopen 30 cold cases that may be linked to the self-confessed serial killer after unidentified DNA was found on the mattress alongside traces of two of his known victims. Amanda, if he's a self-confessed killer, why wouldn't he have already told authorities about other killers? I mean, he's in jail for life anyway. Uh, there's two There's two schools of thought here. One is that this is about playing the game and having those bargaining chips. You know, he is 78. He might say, look, I will give you the rest of them. I've, I've served life. You know, I'm going to be 80 soon. I'm too old to kill. Maybe I can get in, into a halfway house. So he may have been holding on to these to use later as a bargaining chip. The other thought is that, um, like they did with Ivan Milat here in Australia, gee, we have a serial killer who killed lots of people, let's open every cold case and just assume they're all his. Now, they've yeah, got yeah, some yeah. unidentified DNA that was on a mattress, as you said, with traces from other two victims. Now, it could be a cross-contamination. It could be that these victims knew each other. It could be that he indeed killed all of these people. But, I mean, to go from... Um, nothing to now having 12 cases and possibly 30. To me, it seems like that. They're just trying to close some books before True, but the DNA evidence on the mattress is compelling. Well, it's not his DNA. It's DNA from the victims. So, yes. But the, the, the victims may have known each other. Okay, very you interesting. Know? 
So we'll see. Yeah. All right. Well, a woman who survived being kidnapped by a serial killer when she was 15 years old is inspiring hundreds of thousands of people on TikTok, where she has been sharing her story and advice on dealing with trauma and how to help victims. According to BuzzFeed News, on June 24, 2002, Cara Robinson Chamberlain, then 15, when Richard Evanitz put a gun to Chamberlain's neck and forced her into his vehicle. He took her to his apartment and held her captive for 18 hours, according to the FBI, and sexually assaulted her repeatedly. Amanda, victims of these crazed people, they really don't have anyone to turn to that can fully understand their experience, but now they can because they can talk to other victims of like-minded crimes. Yeah, I mean, when I first saw this article, I thought it was going to be um, Carla Brown from Ted Colehead. You know, mm-hmm. that was found. And, and so that's where I went when this article first came up. And then I realised that this was a totally different girl, totally different serial killer. And evidence is, is quite a, a famous one in, in his own neck of the woods. But um, it is interesting to see that she's actually done that. A lot of people, when they're faced with trauma, either shut down, go off the rails, end up drug abusers, things like that. I mean, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer's last victim ended up in jail himself and then and and he's now passed away through um, drug addiction and things like that. So the fact that she's been able to do this is really, really encouraging. And there has been other people, not necessarily victims of serial killers, but we have people like Elizabeth Smart who was um, abducted by Mitchell, which was that fantastic FBI interview that we did where they were right up in his mm. face and he was talking about Jesus. You know, so there is people out there that have actually spoken out and, and have they now have this platform because of what they've gone through now as you said it is hard to find these sort of people because very few people survive a serial killer but the fact that she's actually using this as a platform because though she's a victim of a serial killer she can help those that are now victims of sexual assault domestic violence um kidnapping drug abuse sexual abuse and all of that because though traumas are different um there's still that that um kindred spirit so so, so to speak of of that shared experience that trauma survivors have. I mean, I know that I'm in several uh, trauma survivor groups and PTSD groups, PTSD groups on Facebook, just to talk about things like this. And it's weird that, you know, you say to someone, um, do you find that you wake up at a certain time every night? And most people would go, no, I have no idea. But PTSD survivors actually um, go in and say, oh, my God, yes, and that will set me off mm. and that will cause the anxiety attack and things like this. So if they realise that, their behaviour in, in, in trauma is normalised by others suffering the same thing. It actually makes you feel okay that you're you're damaged but you've survived, Interesting. if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Wow. Um, Amanda, once again, I need to mention our Patreon page because this thing <laughs> is going so awesomely, <laughs> thanks to you. Um, so in case you don't know, we've mentioned Patreon a lot, but Amanda has really changed the game this year by creating a special Facebook group for Patreon subscribers. So if you're on the $10 plus platform, you get access to this secret group on Facebook where you get a lot of access to Amanda. There's lots of videos. There's lots of games, which is a weird <laughs> thing to say, but there's a what's in the box where Amanda gives you clues and talks and people get have to guess what's in the box. It's really fascinating and there's a real community there and it's there really is. building, isn't it, Amanda? Yeah, and there's a lot of friendships that are forming and, and, mm. and people are sort of having their own, own conversations and everything. But, yeah, I do do um, a, a couple of quizzes like um i put up photos of like yesterday's one was um 12 12 photos of serial killers as children so everyone had to guess who they were and other times i've done the houses of serial killers or i've done the moustaches of serial killers and just 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 weird (laughs) wonderful things like that purely because i have no life and i live for serial killers basically but um i we do a lot of that but i also do a lot of educational stuff so um we're currently still going through a massive series that i've I've created of body language so we talk about you know what it means when you bite your lip when when you put both hands on your head when you shake hands a different way no like this robert with your hands behind your back (laughs) he's not so you've got to you've got to be more active in that group rob (laughs) 
<laughs> but yeah, and, and, and it just sort of shows how these people do different things. And so many people have now responded saying, oh, my God, I watched this interview with this politician or that movie star or something. They go, we saw all those telltale signs, you know. Uh, and so it's quite interesting that people are learning and people are actually going out and profiling people and realising that um, there's a lot of bad people out there, which yeah, I don't think is well, a good thing, but they are learning a lot. Uh, so knowledge is key. And is, you're right, is. I should be more active, but I have a little bit of a feeling they're not really there for me. They're there for the serial killer whisper, so, you know, it's I'm just all right. saying that you'll learn about all these facial expressions yes, and everything. Indeed. So to be part of that, just go to patreon.com slash mwmconfessions, as in Monsters Who Murder, and you can subscribe for as little as $5. That'll get our full back catalogue and new episodes go up there a week early. And $10 plus gets you a whole load of bonus features, so keep an eye on that one. We'll be right back with Tim Jones. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. And Robin Robbo. It's the most talked-about TV show that's not on TV. And I think you guys are amazing. With raw, honest opinions. This was not a mistake. This was a lie. Exclusive stories. Some industry insiders have been talking about this. Is that a Ben Robin Robbo exclusive? And plenty of famous faces. I'm not wasting these gold moments on 60 Minutes. (laughs) The Ben Robin Robbo Show is the new way to stream your news. This is the stuff that headlines are made of. Live every Monday to Thursday. Thursday at 1pm Australian Eastern Standard Time on Ticker TV or Facebook and Twitter at BRR Show. Watch live or on demand. It's This week on Monsters Who Murder, we examine the murders of eight-year-old Mira, seven-year-old Elias, six-year-old Natan, two-year-old Gabrielle and one-year-old Abigail Elaine at the hands of their father, Timothy Jones. Jones from South Carolina was a devout Christian who used religious instruction as a reason to systematically beat his children with the final fatal consequences. Now look, we must pause for a moment here to let our listeners know that this episode will go into graphic confessions about murders of children and babies. Please, if this is a topic you find too sensitive, we ask that you skip this episode Amanda, this isn't going to be an easy one, just like the Dali Reuter case we did a few weeks ago, but can you give us a little background to the case? The murders occurred on August 28, 2014. At the time, Joan had actually separated from his wife, Amber, following their discovery that she had been unfaithful on her part. So uh, the marriage had actually been a tough one for her, So, and due to Joan's religious beliefs and the children were treated like slaves. So when he found out that she was having an affair, he not only kicked her out, but he actually fought to ensure that she had no access to the children and that he had full custody. So these children, as, as we said, age from uh, one to eight years old. And it was actually um, when six-year-old Natan expressed a desire to live with his mum instead of Jones that he went into a manic state and that would end with his arrest and the discovery of the bodies of all five children in his vehicle nine days later. Wow. Amanda, let's get into the confession. First, can you describe Jones to us? Yeah, Jones is actually a young white guy. He's actually quite chubby um, and he's balding. Um, He had... once we actually see him now, when what we're going to hear in this is the confession being played in the courtroom. So what we see in, in the courtroom, he's in a suit and tie and things like that. But um, he was quite scruffy and he was quite thin when these murders uh, um, occurred. But once he was in prison, he actually put on a lot of weight. And um, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays into this case. Okay, now what we have is only the recording that was played at his trial, as Amanda mentioned, but no vision. So we'll miss the physical cues and can only go on the verbal. But what we do have is Jones's physical responses to the recording in court, which Amanda also just mentioned. The recording begins with the usual rights and details, but Jones does something interesting. We did advise you of your, your rights. Is that correct? Yes, sir. All right. Can you just state your name? Tim Jones. All right. What's your date of birth? 12 one All right. And you agreed to talk to us? Yeah. We was talking, but they forgot to push the record button. Okay. So this is part two. Interesting, Amanda. Why did he correct them? 
Because this is his first chance to correct them, and this is about his ability to exhibit dominance over them. So, you know, oh. he's saying, well, you know, this is take two because you've stuffed up already, basically. <laughs> this is, so, so we can see that arrogance straight up. He believes that he's smarter than the agents that are in, interviewing him, and he wants those that are listening to know that there was an interview that took place without a recording, you know, because this could play into a reasonable doubt, this could play into coercion, this could play into assault, anything he wants to do because he's now got it on tape saying this is part two because you didn't press record and that's really important. Thinking ahead, that's really interesting. (laughs) All right, well, if correcting them once wasn't enough, he gets to do it again. We went towards the end. We asked you if we threatened in, threatened you. No, you guys anyone. didn't threaten me. No one promised you anything. Could you just please say it out loud? No, nobody promised me anything. Oh, okay. We talked about what happened with your children. Well, no, I take that back. You guys did promise me. You guys said, let me go give them a burial and try to help you out. So no, that's you what you guys promised. Promised a, a good burial for your children. Uh, he wants it on record, doesn't he? A proper burial for his children. Yep, and this is attempting to be sort of um, a try at showing remorse. You know, he's saying, I want you to make sure that you keep that promise that my children are going to be a proper Mm. burial because I'm going to show you where they are and I want to make sure that I end up looking like a dad who who just cracked and and I'm going okay, you know. Um, He has this whole thing because, as as we said, he is a religious fanatic um, and so a proper burial is important for him, obviously, to ensure, you know, eternal rest and all of that. But, again, this is pompous showboating. This is about him saying, you know, I'm smarter than you guys you couldn't catch me, you know, so we're going to play this game and we know it's going to be a cat and mouse like like we see sometimes. So unlike most confessions we examine, they don't like to go straight into the crimes. But as we know, this is the second take, so they've already done all the pleasantries and small talk, so now they get it on tape. He is interviewed by FBI agent David McKee and Detective Creech. He's asked to begin with the catalyst for the murders. The background is that Natan was tortured and extended physical activity that would ultimately end with his death. But Jones claims something different. We talked about when you picked your children up Thursday, which would have been... um August 28th, you picked him up from school that day and something happened that night. Is that correct? Yes, sir. All right, can can you walk us through what happened? I questioned a ton about four outlets that he blew. After a series of not getting any favorable responses out of him, I tried to use more harsh measures to just try to get out of him what was going on because I didn't know what he was doing. I seen four destroyed outlets. Uh, is it for me, him? Was he curious? I just didn't know what was going on. I was trying to make sense of it. I think I worked him too hard or maybe it was a combination of the electricity. I know electricity takes electrolytes out of your body. Uh, something happened. It was out of the ordinary and he would tell me. If I would have known it, I mean, I, I would have got him medical help and whatnot, but I don't know what he did and he didn't tell me. I didn't see any burn marks on his body, so that's why I didn't rush him to the hospital. <laughs> So after the fact, he was deceased. Okay, I want to get this straight. He is claiming the six-year-old had destroyed four PowerPoints or outlets without burn marks and they sucked the electrolytes from his body and that's how he died. So he wasn't electrocuted. They sucked the electrolytes out of his body. I know where this is going and I'm furious because this is there's something I heard that time that I didn't hear the first time. Oh. Now he it's yeah so you know this is what happens when I hear them a few times. So you know first of all let's go through what Jones is doing in court. So he is crying his heart out listening to his own lies. Now his hands remain in his lap out of view and he's sitting actually slouching in his chair, which is actually the body language of disinterest. He really has no care about this. Now, I just said he's he's crying, but he's actually not crying yet, but he will be soon. Um, But he actually just said, I don't know why he did these PowerPoints. Was it for him? Was it for me? Or I don't know. Now, that's an interesting thing that Mm. he he points out because he's actually going to come later and claim that Natan had actually um, planned to kill his father. Six-year-old okay. boy. Right. Well, yeah. 
he is questioned further and he explains the exercise regime he put his son through as punishment. And then what happened to him? What, how, how did he get deceased? What, what did you do? I sent him bed after I worked him real hard because he wouldn't answer me. And, and what, what do you mean by working him too hard? I just PT'd his ass till he couldn't handle it. Tried cracking him on butt a couple times to get something out of him to tell me what was he doing. Right. What's his motive? And when you say PT him, what, what are we talking about? Squats and push-ups. Squats, push-ups. How, how long were you having him PT? I'm PT like an hour. Like I said, there's nothing out of the ordinary. Those kids would do insanity with him. We had fun doing it. And where did he go from, you're doing this, where in the house? Where are you PT? This was in the living room, and then I finally got tired of him and sent him to bed. Okay. to bed. You're not telling me the truth. I can't help you. Go to bed, man. You're wasting everybody's time. And then, and then you, you find out what? I come back and find out that he's deceased. That's interesting. Jones just said, I come back and find that he's deceased. He doesn't say dead, not passed away, not unconscious. He's deceased. It's a very clinical term to use when he's talking about his dead six-slash-seven-year-old son. It is, and this is Jones trying to minimise his blame. So he's saying mm. that he'd run the kids through an hour-long PT session before and never had any issues. So he's trying to create a distance. So he's using the more clinical terms to try and suggest that it's not his fault. You know, he speaks loudly, and you can tell by his voice that he's actually demanding attention, you know. He's speaking in a very authoritarian way like he had with his his children. And he said mm. there that he, he built him on, on, on the bum a couple of times as well to get him going, you know, and that he got tired and so he sent him to bed. Not that the boy was tired. He got tired of telling mm. him him to keep working. Now, he's saying that this was an hour. We know it was a lot longer and this was prolonged torture. This wasn't just doing, you know, set-ups and push-ups. This was horrendous physical torture and there is cases before this and there's been cases since this where children have been put through such rigorous PT for, for torture where they have dropped it because they do go through cardiac arrest. But that's not what's happening here. Wow. Well, then he crumbles. And when I find out he's deceased, then the shit hits the fan. All how did the shit hit the fan, Tim? The voices start going off, and then here comes the paranoia. Oh shit! What just happened? What 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 just happened? This ain't gonna go. I can't call the blood. I got all these voices running through my head now. And then what happens, Tim? <sighs> what did you tell us earlier? So Natan was was dead, and then what happened? I followed suit. What's the other four? So he's bringing out a really crazy defence. I was paranoid, the voices in my head. Yeah, and and this is obviously, you know, that self-preservation. You know, it's not a second thought about this trying to resuscitate his boy or scream for health or even shake him awake. There's a lot Mm. of people that do that. Um, You know, he just thinks about what he can do to get himself out of this mess is what he's he's basically calling it. This is not about Natan. This is not about his children. This was about fl- him fleeing after his logical decision was to then kill the other four. Now, look, we're, we're both parents, and a lot of our listeners are too. Now, <laughs> we wouldn't think, well, one of them is dead. We might as well kill the others too. Is this a kind of altruistic, altruistic series of murders? Yeah, it is. I mean, they, they they mistakenly believe in a sociopathic way that the trauma of one of them dying will be too much for the others to bear. And so they believe that by killing them all, then they can all be together in heaven as though they will have eternal lives together away from the cruelness stuff. and the world. And, you know, we'll actually go through this further because we're actually going to do the Andrew Yates case as well, which is similar but kind of different. You know, but the catalyst here is just so different. Well, getting back to the confessions, the interviewing agent's voice becomes almost a fever pitch as he coaches Jones through the other four murders. Then how did, how did you feel that with my hands? With your hands? Can you describe what you mean by with your hands? Around their neck. Around their neck? Okay. <laughs> who, who is next? I'm just going to put the order so I don't have to go into too much detail. Okay. Just, just tell us right. the order. Tom, Mira, Elias. Time. Eli, Mira, Gabriel, Elaine. <laughs> and when did you say this was, Tim? What day? You told us earlier. Thursday, I think. They were supposed to go to school Friday and they didn't go because, well, they couldn't go. Yeah. Okay, I want to be clear here because the murders were committed in this order. He confuses them and he then corrected himself. 
Tan or Natan, age six, died from the exercise. And then he strangled Elias, seven. Then his daughter, Mira, age eight. Then two-year-old Gabrielle. Then his baby, one-year-old Abigail Elaine. All of these children looked at their father as he choked them. There really are no words here. He is a monster. Absolutely he is. And, and, and this is him trying to use his religion as an excuse that, you know, one has died and so they all have to be together now in heaven. And it is just so frustrating that, um, you know, he could have, have rescued his son perhaps you know i i expect that there is a bit of a cardiac arrest here but we'll actually get into the autopsies and stuff soon but you know he has these children he demanded to have them his wife wasn't allowed to have them because she had had an affair like that's a real reason i mean you can see that straight straight away there was fatal consequences going to happen here purely Mm. because he had kept them as revenge and nothing else there was no love there there was no um want or or desire to have his his children and i know there is dads that have their children taken off them all the time and that is a whole another devastating argument to have but this man only wanted his children to punish his wife so the fact that he then ends up killing them, I mean, there was red flags all over this case. Did he ever say what the other kids were doing while he was going through and murdering each one? Like, were they being held in another room? Were they locked somewhere? Um, as far as I remember, they're actually all in bed, and so he gets each one up and, and he's kills waking them that way. each one up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, look, there was something else in that clip that you noticed, isn't there? Yeah, well, I mean, he cried there for less than 10 seconds, so only to say their name. So he flicks from teary to instantly authoritarian again, you know, with no emotional response. So, you know, he's saying that they were killed on Thursday and then he goes and says, well, they were meant to go on Friday, but, well, they couldn't go, could they? You know, like it's, yeah, this guy gets me. Well, let's play that part again and I'll let it go into the next section to show how quickly he changes his emotions. Just tell us the order. Tan, Mira, Elias. Wait, wait, wait. Tan, Elias, Mira, Gabriel, Elias. And when did you say this was, Tim? What date? You told us earlier. Thursday, I think. They were supposed to go to school Friday and they didn't go because, well, they couldn't go. Yeah. And you said also that this happened where? At the house. Can you tell me what that address was? 2155B, South Lake Drive. What county is that in, Tim? Lexington, South Carolina. Lexington, South Carolina? Okay. Where in the house did you say these happened at? In in the house? The bedroom, not bedroom, the the living room. Okay. You know, we've seen this many times before. It's a complete lack of emotion. The ability to actually remove himself from the horrors he committed. Yeah, I mean, he's he's saying this as if he's reading a newspaper. You know, in court, he actually continues to cry, you know, and he's sitting there, as I said, in, in shirt and a tie, and he's wiping his eyes with a hanky, so a handkerchief, whatever you, people mm. like to call them. His face isn't red. There are absolutely no tears, and he spends most of the time staring at the notepad in front of him, and he rubs his eyes. Now, um, in, in our Patreon group, I actually go through the differences between a fake cry and a real cry but we're seeing it here he's actually pretending to cry but this this hanky and and the tissues he has they remain um constructed you know because usually when (laughs) things get wet they start to you know wilt Mm. and there's none there's not not even a single tear and if people are crying and you can go and watch people crying on 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 you know court things you know where you see victim impact statements stuff they cry Mm. they let the tears go that's part of the, that display. They don't care what it looks like. They, they, they wipe their nose because it does start to drip, but they don't actually care that there are tears. People who can't cry because that they are so emotionally removed from it won't have tears and they try and make them come by rubbing their eyes and it just doesn't work. Mm. Well, let's go back to the confession. What, what did you do um, earlier? You, you said when you would strangle them. What would you do with the bodies at that point? At that point, I was just running on fear, and I wasn't thinking. Any normal person would have said, let me call the police and turn myself in. Okay. I took the coward route and started following those voices in my head, which led me down such a nice path I'm on today. 
So he admits to being a coward. This is self-preservation, right? This is him trying to control a situation he is no longer in control of. Yeah, that's right. And and as he says, a normal person would have called for help, but he is in such a place of fear and the desire to save himself. As I said, this is about self-preservation. You know, at any point in, in these killings, he could have stopped. Yeah. And he kept going. He's looking at his babies in their eyes as he squeezes the life out of them. He could have stopped. He, at any point in that, even if it was the last baby, he could have stopped. But no. He's just doing what he thinks he has to do to save himself. Like, people aren't going to notice these children have absolutely disappeared. But, you know, he could have also turned to his almighty God and asked for uh, guidance. But, no, God hasn't made an appearance yet, which Mm. is very interesting in this interview. So um, for someone who is so strict in his religious instruction, you know, there doesn't seem to be any God-fearing here. Where's the, you know, thou shalt not kill? Interesting. Well, once he's killed all the children, he puts them in the car. The agent then asks what the plan or what the next part of his plan was. What, what did you do then? What do you mean? Put the bodies. I put them in bags and threw them on the hill. Okay, no, no, no. When when you're at the house, oh, load them. I just load them in the car. Did you put them in the bag at that time? I don't know. Okay. I just buy the you put them in, in the vehicle. What type of vehicle was that? Cadillac Escalade. All right. And what do you do from there? I start driving out of fear. Tim, tell us, what was your original plan to do with the bodies? Now that we've had a chance to talk about it. I don't know what my original plan was. I had so many thoughts going through my mind. What, what were some of them? Because you wrote some notes and you bought some I had a hundred different thoughts about what I could do. Okay. I don't want to sit and incriminate myself, but no, I, had, fine, I had a bunch of different things. I, you know, one... Okay, he had a bunch of different thoughts, but he doesn't want to incriminate himself. Huh? Yeah, totally perplexing, you know. I'm totally confused by this. You know, he has confessed to strangling the children with his bare hands, and now he says he doesn't want to incriminate himself. I mean, he's just confessed to murder. But anyway, Mm. it doesn't make sense until we actually get to the next part of the interview. Ah, okay. Well, according to the interview, Jones had written a list of possible methods of disposal Where this goes is just horrifying, so please be aware. We went over this, but part of your plan was to do what? The bodies. I think originally I intended to go do all that stuff that I wrote down on the paper, but But then I couldn't bring myself to it. Right? What was it? Do stuff to get rid of the corpse. Do you remember what step one was? Like, dissolve them or something like that. I was going to cut them up. I was going to do all kinds of... Did you write down that you were going to burn the bodies? I think I was going to burn them, yeah. And you were going to... What was step two? Boil them or... I forget what it was. That's what I'm trying to tell you. I don't remember everything. Yeah. Yeah. Did you write that you were going to... I wrote stuff down that... It was in the context of that time, but... Alright. Was it something that you were going to uh, cut the bodies up? So I could bring myself to do, yes. So... It's one thing to brutally murder your kids. I mean, (laughs) it's one thing, you know. But then to consider cutting them up, boiling them or setting them on fire, this is beyond a confused man listening to voices. Um, Yeah, exactly. And, you know, he said, oh, I don't want to incriminate myself. He's confessed to killing the children, but it was the fact of the post-mortem injuries on his children that he was more embarrassed and and afraid to admit to you know and he'd actually written a note and I've seen the note you know of all these things that he needs to do and get bin bags and all of this sort of stuff you know and he's a to-do list sorry a to-do list 100 percent 100 percent and he's crying in in court but there's absolutely no emotion you know he claims that he wouldn't have done it but there's no doubt that if one of these methods didn't work he was going to go to have the next one and the next one and the next one until there was nothing left of these babies you know, we really have profiled some pretty evil people in this podcast series, but a father willing to cut up and boil the bodies of his children, it it really goes beyond anything I can imagine. How How is he actually human? I know that these killers separate themselves and have and think differently, but I can't reconcile myself with the idea that, one, you can kill your kids, but let's move past that. 
But the idea then to be thinking, well, now I have to, you know, boil them and do all this kind of stuff to get rid of the evidence, I mean, you'd still be looking at those kids thinking, I did this. It's just bizarre. He, like we've seen with lots of the people that we've that we've done these confessions of, and they lack that emotion. They lack that um, degree of of de- description. They they keep it so superficial that you know, if that was me telling that story and that's what I had done. I'm not evil, so I wouldn't have ever done it. But I would have been talking about how I was hysterical or, you know, that, mm. that you know, this was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Or making those statements that would reinforce that this is not what you wanted to do. But we're not seeing that here. You know, he's basically thinking about how he can get away with murder and he's believing if there's no body, there's no crime. And we literally discussed that last week on the Claremont case. You know, but he's intelligent enough to plan it out that he actually wrote down these steps of what he was going to do. He had full intention to do all of those things to his babies. So, you know, at the same time, he's fighting to get custody of them, but they weren't children. You know, they, they, they were pawns in a revolting um, custody battle that he wanted to have with his wife purely to say, you messed up, you don't get these children. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, to, to go and do this, this, I don't know, you know, it's purely, regardless of what he is saying the reason for this was and it was about the PowerPoints and everything, it's purely that Natan had actually spoken up and said, I want to be with mum. Yeah. Well, look, we're not even seven minutes into this confession and we have a long way to go. The agent's now taking through the dot point plan he'd made. What? What is day one? Burn up bodies. What's day two? Slot on bones. What's day three? MB smiley face dissolve, dissolve and discard. Okay, so your initial plan was to do these things with, with their bodies. That was one of them. I told you there's other stuff. That just happened to be the one that's materialized. I had a million thoughts going through Okay. Let's go over this. This is what? Head to the campground, no bodies, and send bodies to dust your small bodies. Small discard by a sanitation plant. Okay, so these are some of the things that were going through your head? That was, that's just a small amount of stuff that was going through my head, yes. I mean, at least he's being honest about the fact that he was thinking about these things, but it's pretty clear, and there wasn't a thousand ideas going through his head, though. No, exactly. This is his plan to get away with murder. You know, this is about how he can rid himself of the evidence. This is about evidence. This is not about his children, his babies, his offspring, his loves of his life, the things that he fought hard to get. No, this is about getting rid of evidence, you know, and he is just... Not just, you know, let's go and dig a shallow grave and dump them in and walk away. People do yeah. that. This is going through day one, day two, day three, day four, how long it's going to take to to um, dissolve them in acid and all of this. This is purposeful and clearly planned out. Jesus. But, look, one of the interviewing agents throws a curveball. Have a listen to this. Did you write this before or after you killed the children? After. That was a five-second clip. And, Amanda, you found three things. (laughs) I have no life, do I? (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry. I shouldn't be laughing because this is horrifying. But, anyway, firstly, it actually took him three seconds to answer. Now, it doesn't seem like long and no one would have even spotted that. But the other questions, he spoke over the top of the agents and answered before they'd even finished their questions. He was jumping in before. And this one, he didn't. He had to think about that because... He didn't realise that they had picked up on that. So, And there's also a change of emotion. So this answer isn't with that authoritarian voice he's had for the rest of this, you know. And then he realises that this question means that they don't believe his story about Natan dying accidentally. So there's your three and five seconds. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he then composes himself and continues answering. Did you write this before or after you killed the children? After. I wasn't premeditating this, no. Okay. This was not premeditated. This was a, oh, shit, what just happened? So you had the bodies in in the vehicle. Did you write this in your house, in the car? Where did you write these notes? That was on the back of a clipboard Mm -hmm. in the house, I think. 
Yeah, we think that we're going to have some net bit of riding and driving. Okay. Did you did you do this before or after you put the bodies in the car? I don't remember. Okay. I don't. I'm sorry. Those details, I don't remember. He's been shaken by that question, hasn't he? He has, and this is where it all changes, and this is where great interviews can change with one question, and that question has now totally changed the way that this interview is going to go. They obviously didn't ask that question the first time that they recorded it. It's obviously something that they'd sort of thought about and ruminated on before they decided to ask us. But, you know, the bravado raises its head just briefly when he tries to sort of um, negate his his softly spoken answer to the first time. But, you know, he is alert or lost now and now he's suddenly vague and, oh, I don't remember doing that and I'm not quite sure, you know. Yet he could correct the order in which he killed the children but now he doesn't remember where he wrote a note and things like that, you know. But now the answers are confused, he's unsure, and now he's starting to take a few seconds because he's thinking about that note. So that forceful, clever man that we had is now gone. It's interesting. I think I offhandedly made a comment, oh, at least he's being honest, but he wasn't being. No. (laughs) So, and, and, and this is what a lot of criminals do, and this is why you go... You never, one, get interviewed by police. You do not get interviewed by police. Two, if they demand that you be interviewed by them, you take a lawyer and the lawyer talks and you don't say a word. Ever, Mm. ever, ever. How many of these interviews have we done where a lawyer has been in that room? None. Is that because they think they can outsmart the police? Yeah, 100%. And usually what happens is that they talk, they're brought in as not a person of interest but a person who is involved in the case who might be able to further and furnish um, the the information that they already have. So they come in right. and start it and then they will say something that then gets them arrested So what during that interview. You know, can you come and just have a chat with us, you know, and then they go, I'm now going to read you your rights because you just said something that they incriminated you. And they don't think about that. And that's what's happened here. And so, you know, he's now changing his mind and going over things because until that point where they asked, when did you write that note? He thought this was all calm. And obviously the first interview he'd done, which, you know, it would be great to, to, to have the two to compare, they didn't go down this road. So I'd say that they didn't get this far. No, it didn't realized. sound like they got a, a long way into the recording. Yeah, but I don't think that they'd gone far enough to realise yeah. that. Yeah, so that question now has just totally changed it. I, I mean, just even the idea, though, that um, the guy thought, Oh, it took his electrolytes. That's the part I still can't get over. <laughs> but look, uh, they then start going through his movements and stopping at Walmart. This is with his dead children in the car. Now, we had also gone through some of what uh, what you went and purchased, um, and specifically at the, at the Walmart. Do you remember that? Yeah. All right. Let's see if I can find the receipt for that. Yoga choice and nicotine. What what did you purchase at the uh, at the Walmart? Uh, I don't remember which Walmart. This would have been the one in West Columbia. Uh, well, I don't remember. Okay, did you buy a saw there? Uh, yeah. Okay. Did you buy? Let's go over this this receipt here. This receipt. It's going to be from Gusser Road in West Columbia. Okay. All right. And the date here is 9-3. So this is, this is after, because what happened to the children was on Thursday. What day was that? Is that correct? 28th. That's the 28th. That makes sense. Now, 9-3, this is on Wednesday. So this is after the weekend. And where have them children been the whole time? With me. Where? Now, he remains a little vague, but then answers. The answers, though, they're pissing me off. Yeah, exactly. You know, where are the children? They're in the car with me. You know, it sounds like they're going for a Sunday drive and he's he's popped into Walmart to get them drinks and snacks, you know. Yeah, but these, exactly. These babies are, and I call them babies, you know, they're, they're, they're under eight. To me, that's a baby. I've got grown-up kids, yeah. You know, but these babies are actually piled in the back of the car covered in junk to hide their bodies. They're not even like sitting up or something grotesque like that either. They are covered in stuff, in blankets and and boxes and mess and everything as if they're not even there. So just to be clear, he's buying 
products to use on his kids that are in the back of his car, and the agents start asking him about that. Where are they, though? With me in the car. Okay. Yeah, they're all in the back? Yes. Okay. Well, in the middle. Not back. So back implies the... Sorry, back implies the back where you open. Uh, you saw, you I told me earlier they were... You had them covered up in some sheets or blankets. Yeah, I had two blankets and a shitload of air freshener. So you have you have their bodies there. You go in and you purchase what? Walk me through what you're purchasing here. Uh... Alright. Uh, a dust mask. This is actually Gatorade, but oh. dust mask. Some goggles and some hand saws. Some jab saw it says. And a multi-saw. Multi-saw. What's this here? Uh, some muriatic acid. And what's this here? Uh, like a five-gallon pail. Alright. Were you purchasing this stuff at that time because you initially thought you might be able to go through with this? Partially, and then I couldn't bring myself. You, you just couldn't do it. Okay. So one of the next receipts we kind of talk about is going to be several days later. I had um, these thoughts in my head to try to do this, and then I couldn't bring myself to do it. Okay. Okay. We're going to stop right there to note that in the courtroom, he does not show an ounce of emotion during any of this until he hears himself say he couldn't do it. And then he does the fake crying that you talked about, Amanda. The scrunched eyes, the handkerchief there to hide the lack of tears, an overly pouting lip. Amanda, this is something you've examined on the Patreon group, of you, as you've mentioned, it's pure deception, isn't it? It is, it is, and and that's what they do, and this is why they can't keep it up because to have this sort of emotion takes a lot of effort to get to this point, and if you're in trauma, it comes easy because it's part of the of the traumatic part of this. But when you're trying to fake it, it takes so much more energy to do it that you can't keep it up, and he only cries when he's worried about himself. He He couldn't do it. You know, he should be happy about that part. So he's he's crying at the wrong parts. He should be crying at that he bought these things that, you know, he could have said, oh, you know, I went into Walmart and come back out and went back in and come back out and I, you know, I, I'm denied about it and I had these a thousand thoughts. This is the place to do it. But he's like, no, I went in there. Not only did that, I'm standing in the queue to pay for the uh, the acid and, and, and chainsaws and I decided to grab a Gatorade. Yeah. You know, this just proves that he was calm and collected. He had no emotion when he was doing this. And, you know, this is why he is trying to show deception, especially in court, where, where he does this fake crying. And it, it's like everyone is sitting around basically rolling their eyes at him and he's sitting there pretending to cry here, there and everywhere but not not continuously and everyone's just staring at him. There is um, the interviewing F- FBI agent is actually in the stand when this is playing and he's just staring at him and Tim Jones is looking down at that legal pad in front of him. He will not look up for a second at the agent who's just staring him down like this is what I asked you and I know. Interesting. Well, there is a lot more to dissect in this case, including what happened next, what else he bought and how he got caught. We're going to examine those three points next week in Monsters Who Murder Serial Killer Confessions. Amanda, thank you very much for your insight as always. Thank you. It's a tough one to get through, but we'll get there. It is. And in the meantime, don't forget to go to patreon.com slash mwmconfessions if you're on the free service and you want to hear episode two a week earlier than everyone else. All right. We'll see you next week. 